0: If you don't know, my name is Matt. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here. We've been in a series for a couple of weeks now called Ignorant, where we're looking at topics that as believers we can be pretty ignorant of. So one of them was culture, Uh, what's happening right now in our country especially. And so we looked at that. Then homosexuality, the transgender question. Last week, this book that we hold, Sacred Scripture, like what is it? How did we get it? Uh, How was it shaped? What does it mean to us? So we looked at that last week. And today we're going to talk about a subject that my guess is most believers already think they know about. It's one of those. It's like parenting, right? I was a great parent until I had kids. And then I realized, oh, wow. Now here's what I know. I'm an average dad. That's what I am. But even as an average dad, I'm still better than half of you guys. (laughs) Right? That's what average means. (laughs) Right? Or engaged couples. I get and do premarital counseling, and they'll be like, oh, we got marriage. We love each other. Oh, all right, right? My favorite was this dude who thought he had it six months after they got married. He's like, bro, i got to meet with you. I'm like, okay, now you're ready. Yeah. He's like, I don't know what happened. The moment I said I do, she turned into her mom. Okay, we can talk now. All right, so it's one of those kind of subjects that we really believe that we're pros on, but I don't think we are. And the subject is sin. So we kind of think, oh, we got what sin is. We understand sin, but mostly we talk about sin in what it does, but not actually what it is. It's essence. And whenever you do that, you're going to make a mistake. So like cancer, everybody knows what cancer does, right? It causes tumors. But if you don't know what cancer is, you'll never be able to cure it. You'll come up with weird solutions. So I read one recently, um, Deepak Chopra, the friend of Oprah, So he has a cure for cancer, and he calls it anti-cancer psychotherapy. And so according to Mr. Chopra, he says this, people have a cancer personality. That is a bummer of a personality to have, by the way. (laughs) So the way that you help people with a cancer personality is you talk them out of their cancer personality, and they get better. Right? That's missing the essence of what sin is, or of what cancer is, right? Cancer is a genetic mutation that's gone crazy, right? You cannot talk genetic mutations out of being crazy. So if you don't know what something is, you'll start making some really bad problems. So when it comes to sin, I think we often look at not what sin is, but it's repercussions. And the Bible has lots about sin's repercussions. Romans six twenty three. The wages of sin is death, right? Genesis Chapter 2, verse 17, if you eat of this tree, you will die, right? So that's one of them. We also know the Bible says, Isaiah 58, that your sin actually separates you from God. So we know that. Psalm 66 says that sin makes it so that God does not hear you. Proverbs 632 says sexual sin is a unique kind of sin. It actually destroys your body that there's something in sexual sins that's different than every other kind of sin, it causes destruction. Or 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, if you're not husbands taking care of God's daughters, your wife, your prayers are hindered. So most of us know that, and there's, there's more texts about that, so we kind of know the, the repercussions, but that's the fruit of sin. It's not the root. So what is sin? And sin in the Bible is a catch word that we would say it defines what's wrong in the world. Is there a lot wrong in our world right now? El Paso, Dayton, Ohio, the violence, right? There there seems to be a lot wrong in our world. And we start looking at what's wrong with our world, there's all these competing ideas of what sin is. So if you look at like the enlightenment, the science of sin, they're gonna say, well, what's wrong in the world is People have chemical imbalances in their brain. It's a biological thing. So if it's a chemical imbalance, what's the cure? A pill, right? Give them a pill that balances out their chemicals. And that's a lot of what happens today. So that's the enlightenment kind of science solution, evolution. Evolution says what sin is, is any obstacle to human progress. So guess what their solution to sin is? Give us some time. We'll evolve out of it. Give us a billion years and we won't have these problems anymore. Sorry for you, you're just another step in the ladder to human progress, just give us time, right? But you keep going, psychology says this, the problem sin is really low self-esteem or bad thinking habits. So then their solution is going to be, all right, let's get your self-esteem up a little bit, or let's replace bad habits with good habits, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy. And there's some truth to that, no doubt, but that's the way they define sin, and then they come up with their solution. Human tolerance, like the whole idea of, like, we got to tolerate all humans, what they're going to say is, the sin is actions or words that hurt other people. So the solution today to that is shaming people, just shouting them down so you don't do that anymore. And there's a lot of that around. The green movement, the new green deal, they're going to say, here's the problem. It's not valuing all living organisms the same. So guess what their solution is? Become a eco-regional, vegan, bike-riding, organic hemp farmer. That's the solution to all the world's problems, right? CBD oil will cure everything, including sin. Just put a little dab of it on. (laughs) Sorry if you're a CBD dude. (laughs) Liberalism says this. There's no such thing as sin. All people are good. The only problem in the world is oppressors. And so we have to rid the world of oppression. And we talked about that. On day one. So what happens very often in our minds, sometimes in church, these competing ideas of sin, they're put into like a blender and they're just kind of buzzed up, and then a sin smoothie is poured out, and we all kind of drink of it. So we have all these like competing ideas then of, of solutions and what sin is, and they, they, they end up clouding and muddying the water. So this series, what we're trying to do is like say, let's take take a step back from presuppositions. Let's take a step back from our culture, and let's really look at what the Bible says. Sin is right. So, let's try that. Are the Ten Commandments breaking them? Is that sin? This is an easy one. Yes, right. Fully, okay. First John three four says all lawlessness is sin. First John five seventeen says all wrongdoing is sin. And those are easy ones. We kind of get that. But if you keep reading the Bible, it starts to expand sin to include some other stuff. Romans 14, 23. It says anything that we do outside of faith is sin. Well, that's more complex. James four seventeen says this. Inaction, not doing what we know we should do is sin. So inaction then becomes sin. And you keep reading these texts And so your simplistic kind of definition of what sin is starts to get more complex and we're like, huh, that's hard. How does this work out? So what I always do is I try to run whatever I'm thinking about, whatever my definition is, I try to run it through scenarios. So let's run this through some scenarios. Is going 26 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone, is that sin? It's illegal, but is it sin? How about going, how about going 25 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone when everybody else is used to going 34 miles per hour, because 34 is still legal, right? We get that 10 mile an hour window. So... You're doing 25 when everyone is used to doing 34 miles per hour because you're going to slow them down. You, will sh- you are the speed police. So you're going 25 on the nose, and you just start getting people stacked up behind you that are just angry at you. And they are murdering you in their heart. <laughs> so you end up making 15 mass murderers because of your 25 miles per hour. Is that sin? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself by doing that? Right? Start just kind of crunching this through. How about bad people that do some really good stuff, like drug dealers that take care of their mothers in stage four cancers, cancer, but Christians that won't do the same thing? Like, what about that? That's complicated. Can good things be sinful? Can virtue be sin? I'm gonna read a good book. Read the heavenly man, about Brother Yun. He's a pastor of the underground church in China, and what has happened to him is unbelievable. It's a modern fox's book of martyrs. He's been beaten, he's been imprisoned, he's been starved, he's been tortured. You would not believe what's happened to this man. It's unbelievable. But he says this in his book. He says all that stuff, he could have stopped by just denying Jesus. It would have stopped instantly if he denied Jesus. He goes, I didn't. He went through what he did not, what he went through to not deny Jesus is unbelievable. But he said the hardest temptation I ever faced in my life was when he was out of prison and he saw his son, young, 10 years old, thin, ragged, filthy, dirty, being teased by his schoolmates because his dad was a filthy Christian criminal. And he knew in just 30 seconds I could stop his pain. By one denial, I could be a good dad to my son. I could be a good husband to my wife. He said that was the hardest temptation. Can virtue be sin, right? You you, you run this through, and what you start to see is this is a complex issue. Sin is a complex issue. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to look at two stories, origin stories, and then try to talk about what sin is, right? So origin story number one is Genesis chapter four. You should know this story well. It's Cain and Abel. I'll read it, and we'll talk. I'll back up. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, this is the key, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is for you, literally contrary or against you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You guys know the story. Two brothers, the first two brothers. They each have an offering to give to God. They're in church. They bring the offerings to God. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is not. Now Cain's not a bad dude. He's in church, right? He's not sex trafficking. He doesn't have some secret sin of adultery that's behind him. He's just your average, everyday good dude. But then something happens to him. Something moves in him. Because of this acceptance of Abel and non-acceptance of him. And most likely Cain was half-hearted. He was coming to church to try to bribe God off so he could do his thing, half-hearted. Where Abel's offering, it says the fat portions, the most expensive stuff, was wholehearted. God, I'm wholeheartedly for you. God doesn't want half of you. He's not interested in half of you. He's interested in all of you, right? So then here's what you see in this little story. God looks at Abel and warns him about something. Sin's crouching at the door. Look out. So here's what we learn about sin. This is really the first mention of sin. Sin has an origin, right? There's been no action yet. He hasn't done anything wrong. He He hasn't murdered anybody. Cain's still blameless in a way. But God sees sin crouching and ready to pounce on him. And names it. And the sin right now is just, it's inside of Cain, his heart, and God sees it and names it. So here's what you learn about sin right here. Sin is a movement of your heart. It's a movement of your soul. That's what it is. It has that origin right there. But number two, it's compared to a crouching beast, like a lion that's getting down on its haunches, ready to pounce and take somebody out. That's the word that's used right here. It's a crouching beast whose goal is against Cain. Contrary. It's going to pounce on him. How crazy is that? It makes sense. If you look at a New Testament passage of Romans, I'll read it to you. I think Paul in writing Romans was reflecting on this story. Listen to what Paul says, verse 15, Romans seven. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like what in the world happened? I bet you Cain sat in that field after he killed Abel and he's like, what did I just do? What came over me? What attacked me? What got me? So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now I do, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What a crazy text, right? I almost just did Romans chapter seven for today. But I think stories are better. They get us, they get our imagination. He, he's, it's exactly this. It's like a crouching beast, almost outside of us, an alien entity that comes and attacks us and takes us out. And the things that we want to do, do we don't end up doing. And the things that we don't want to do, we end up doing. Anyone ever feel that before?
1: Man, I have.
0: It's like this power outside of us. And what you see in this story is sin is like the Big Bang. It's waiting for that singularity, that moment, to explode into a cosmic expansion. Because it begins just as envy. God God likes Abel's offering and not mine. A little envy. That envy turns into anger, and that anger turns into a plan, and that plan turns into murder. Murder. Bang, right? Do you see that? And God's like, when it's just envy, when it's a crouching beast, dude, be careful. Be careful of this power. Look out, or else it's gonna expand. Sin always metastasizes. Sin is never alone, do you notice that? One sin always leads to another sin. The grudge that you have is a singularity waiting to explode into Murder. The lust that you have is a singularity waiting to explode into adultery. I go on and on and on. That's what sin is. That's why Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Hey, great. You haven't taken a baseball bat to your neighbor and killed him. Bravo. Sainthood for you. And Jesus says, but if you've hated your neighbor no cause. You're a murderer. What is Jesus saying? That little hatred. It's a singularity waiting for a bang, and it'll explode into murder. That's what sin always does, right? So this story is giving us some insight into how this works. Like, oh, okay. It's like this thorn power. Look out for it. It will attack you. It's a movement that starts within me, ready to explode into something worse. But there's another story that's really important on sin. It's Genesis chapter three. And I'll just tell you it for time. You know Genesis. Genesis one and two, God creates a good space. Puts his humans in there, right? Meets their needs, sees Adam is lonely and says, I'm gonna create somebody for you. So he creates a wife, Eve, and gives it to Adam. And Adam sees her and is like, whoa, man, this is awesome. That's chapters one and two. Good, super good. And God says, hey, humans, I've given you this place. Eat of every tree that you see. The thousands of trees, eat whatever you want, man. Paleo diet, you won't gain anything. It's awesome. But there's this one bad tree. Don't eat of it. If you do, it will kill you, right? So that's chapters one and two. Good, it's all good, man, that's awesome. Except for this one bad tree, say, you know, don't eat of that tree. What do we see in chapter three? Where is Eve at? She's hanging out by the tree. Who else is there? A crouching beast called the serpent. And what does the crouching beast do? He starts to do something to God's character. He doesn't attack God's existence, because they would know God exists. We walk with him in the cool of the evening. He doesn't attack God's love because they knew God loved them because God had demonstrated that to them. What does the serpent attack? God's goodness. God's goodness. God says the tree is bad and it'll kill you. No, it won't. The tree is good. It'll make you like God. If you eat of this tree, it'll make you like him. And God's actually holding out on you. He's not letting you experience the fullness of what you're supposed to experience. God is limiting you. He's not good. That's what's happening. It's the same lie. The serpent whispers, the crouching beat whispers into all of our brains today. If you follow God wholeheartedly, life will be a bummer. It'll kill you. You'll have no friends. You'll have no fun. It'll be boring. Right? Obedience is boring. Rebellion is exciting. Good girls go to heaven. Bad girls go everywhere else. It's all those ideas. Come on, partake. What do you mean you have to wait until marriage to have sex? How stupid is that? God's holding out on you, God's limiting you. Right? It's the same whisper party, have fun. If you follow God, look out. It'll be miserable. It'll kill you. He'll send you to Mongolia where you'll live in a yurt wearing yak skin garments, eating bugs with no toilet paper. In fact, there will only be a bathroom. That's what God will do to you. That's the whisper of the serpent, the crouching beast to this day. Eve, God's not good. He's holding out on you. Eat. So what does Eve do? She eats. She eats. And then she hands that forbidden fruit to Adam. And what does Adam do? He eats of the forbidden fruit. That's the story. Now, if you look at that story, who's to blame in the story? Where should the blame fall? You could blame the serpent. You know, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. I know, so cheesy. Had to do it, though. I mean, it's just so easy. What is, who does Adam blame? It's the woman you gave me. Mo, the most brilliant sentence in the history of the Bible. He blames his wife and God in like three words. I mean, it's brilliant. Right? Come on, God, you made her. You knew what she was capable of. Not like I had a choice for another wife. She was the only one in existence. Come on, God. Your fault, right? And every man has done that since. 100%. How much of my counseling is that? Blaming wives for our own stupid inaction or action. If I hadn't taken your advice, we wouldn't be in this mess. It's all your fault. How many men do that to this day? It's the brokenness of man now where we should be protecting our wives. We should be the blame absorbers. Instead, we're always blaming them because they're easy targets. It's a brokenness that we got from Adam. And we need to grow out of that. All right. so who's to blame? The New Testament, Romans 5, 12, puts the blame squarely on Adam. It was man's sin. It was man's grabbing that forbidden fruit that brought sin into the world. If you read the New Testament over and over, it says Eve was deceived. She was tricked. She wanted to be like God. She had good desires, virtues that were twisted, deceived by the serpent. But not Adam. Adam sinned. Now, why is that? Why is it firmly placed on Adam's shoulder? Here's why, and this is a massive insight into sin. When Adam was handed that fruit, he faced a choice. He faced a choice of choosing to follow his wife down the path of sin or choosing his maker and creator, God. It was a choice there. Who do I choose? And he took the forbidden fruit and ate of it and chose his wife. He chose his wife over God. And when you think about that and actually look through the Bible, that gives us the biggest insight on what sin actually is. Here's what sin is. Sin is is a disordered love. It's a disordered love. The Bible makes it clear we're to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. We're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that he's to be primary, and then everything else comes underneath that. What happened in Genesis 3 is Adam flipped it and put his wife above God. And that disorderedness is sin. And I'm not the guy that had thought this through, in fact, this goes back 1,600 years to a guy named Augustine who said sin is a disordered love. So I'll try to prove that to you. If you read the Bible, here's what you see. As you read through the Old Testament, the prophets especially, there are two sins that come up over and over and over again. They are the sin of idolatry and the sin of injustice. The sin of idolatry is simple, placing anything above God. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. You can make an idol of just about anything your car, ministry, whatever it is, putting anything above God. That's idolatry. Injustice is mistreating other image bearers. Injustice. Those are the two big sins of the Old Testament, over and over and over. So Jesus comes and he's asked by somebody, Hey, what's the greatest commandment? How does Jesus respond? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. No more idolatry. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. No more injustice. And Jesus says, on these two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. If you order your loves correctly, loving God supremely, loving your neighbor as yourself, everything that the Bible is about is completed ordered love that's what Jesus says okay so start thinking that through put that through the ringer if we order our loves correctly what happens there's a command in the Bible it's more repeated than any other command in scripture guess what it is fear not the most repeated command from Genesis to Revelation don't be afraid fear not anybody in here ever afraid I am Anybody in here afraid of dying? Raise your hand. More of you are afraid of dying. Come on. You're lying to me right now. That's a sin, okay? <laughs> Sinners. Life is lived in the shadow of death. That's it. Life is lived that way. And the older you get, the more years you put on, the more that shadow darkens your life. I'm 47. According to statistics, I've got more life behind me than I have in front of me, right? So darkness starts to shade me. So we live in the shadow of death. We go through the valley once, but we live in its shadow all the time. And most people fear death. But I would suggest, if you did commandment number one, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, you would never fear death. What do I mean? I'll explain it like this. I lived in Vanuatu for about a school year, Um, loved it there. Vanuatu is a bachelor's paradise. So I spearfished every day, Um, got to go adventuring into like really cool spots, untouched by civilization, scuba dive, like the coolest spots in the world, these massive World War II wrecking, it's unbelievable, it's it's the highlight of my years before marriage, It's brilliant, loved it. Hang out with these guys all the time, they're super fun, Brilliant year. Love that. There's only one problem. When I was over there, I was engaged to my wife. She was my fiance. So there was always this kind of pull. And there were many times living on an island at an all men's Bible college that I would stare across the blue Pacific and think, that's it, I'm swimming. I'm getting back to her, right? Because of that draw on a lot of levels. In fact, when I flew back, I told my wife, I told her, my fiance, I said, bring a pastor and bring your dress because when I'm getting off, I'm going to say I do, okay? (laughs) It's been a long time on an island with men, all right? So I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) So, love Vanuatu, but I was super stoked to take that plane trip home. That's if we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, death would be like that plane trip home. It just gets better but it's not because we have disordered loves right how much violence how much pain is because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves that when the serpent bit us crouched and pounced on us in Genesis 3 it got a hold of the human heart and it poisoned it so now we always look out for number 1 how much pain is from looking out for number 1 me my interests my thing not loving our neighbor as ourself. How much of that? Tons. How often do we get angry, not because there's a legitimate reason to get angry, we get angry because my thing didn't happen the way I wanted it. Like I have these dreams sometimes of, after a long day of work, I have a dream of this idyllic evening. Going home, reading a bit, sitting on a couch, chatting with my wife, and then guess who ruins that? Five children. They are professional vandals of idyllic evenings, right? They're running and they're screaming and they're spilling stuff. Most of that is me, actually. A little bit of it's them. And it just ruins it. Now, wh- what happened there? Why do I get mad? Because you ruined something I love an idyllic evening. It's a disordered love. I mean, you just track through what's racism? Racism, I like my tribe better than your tribe. It's a disordered love. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. You can just keep going on and on and on. How much pain is caused because of, of drugs? Right? Loving that feeling more than you love the baby in your womb. We've dealt with drug babies. It's a disordered love. How many men, because they love pleasure more than they love God's daughters, just echo out into the world tons of brokenness, rape, molestation, incest, right? Just, what is that? It's a disordered love. How about money? Is money good or bad? Yes. (laughs) What's the problem with money? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's when it gets it out of order. When it's disordered, oh. Think about how much damage has come because somebody loves money. You just keep going on and on and on and on. Can good things, if they're out of balance, can they become bad? Oh, yeah. Are families good? Yes, families are good. Can families be problems? Yes. Right? Dads who are to their sons, come on, you're a Miller, represent. Sorry if your last name is Miller, it's just. Generic, I don't need any emails on that. You're a great person, all right? (laughs) What happens there? Dad just squeezing down on their kids trying to make them something that they're not. Oh, dangerous. I had a mom say to me, if my son doesn't do this, it will kill me. I said, lady, you're giving your son way too much power over your life. How about societies where if a daughter does something that they don't like, they kill her. It's called honor killings. How bizarre is that? What is that? That's a disordered love is what that is. All right, good things. Job, is a job good? Yeah, having jobs is good. Do jobs ever get out of whack and cause damage? Yeah, it's called workaholics. Stress, ulcers, broken marriages, broken kids from a really good thing called working. How about fitness? Is fitness good? Sure, be fit. Can fitness get out of whack? Oh, my goodness. Like, I don't understand, like, the craze right now for fitness gear. I'll go to lunch with a guy, and he'll show up in a jogging suit. I'm like, did you just jog here? No, dude, I'm wearing this. Like, why? Why are you wearing that? Personal problem, I guess, me. <laughs> People abuse steroids and bulimia and body image and, ah, like on and on and on and on. Right, it's what? What happened? It got out of Whack, you just keep going on. So when the serpent bit the human heart, something happened to it. So the order that God had that would lead to a shalom and a flourishing and brilliance was just cracked and destroyed. And the human heart now is just a factory of disordered loves. And our disordered loves, what happens is it just, reper- the repercussions of it go out. It's death, it's lawlessness, it's godlessness, it's destruction. That's what it is. So sin is disordered love in our heart. Well, Matt, what do we do about it? Nothing. You can do nothing about your disordered heart. There's not a thing in the world. That's why Paul in Romans 7 is like, I can't figure this out. I know how I want to live, but I can't seem to figure out how to live that. And instead, I'm doing all the things that I don't want to do. That's Romans 7. And the mistake that we make, which is actually what Romans is all about, is we start going back to stuff. So Paul in that text is saying, don't go back to Moses to cure your bad heart, which is what so many people do. If I just had a better law, if I was just more disciplined, if I could just write the right DVD or the right book on how to you know, self-help myself, I'll get it figured out. How many people do that? And it doesn't work. I just tell people that are doing that, listen, God gave 613 perfect discipline rules and it never worked for the Israelites. 1,500 years of failure. You're not gonna do better than that. Or people think, if I just had a guru, the right dude to follow, if I just had that, could see that counselor or see that person or hang out with them, I tell people that want that, I give you one year and what will happen is you'll get tired of them and you'll move to the next guru. My example is always the 12 disciples and Jesus. What better guru to be around than Jesus, God in the flesh? And you can hardly read a chapter in the Bible without one of the 12 disciples doing some kind of moronic thing. Jesus, right there, didn't work. There is nothing you can do. So instead, what we start to do is we barter with God, don't we? We try to make these, God, I promise that I won't do this anymore if you will do this for me, right? You ever done that? Listen carefully. Never, never negotiate with God. You have nothing He needs, and what He asks for, you cannot give. Never negotiate with God. It does not work. Okay, Matt, well, where are we at then? What's gonna happen? I can sense all this in me. I can see the disordered love. I can see how it could cause problems. What do we do? Read the story of King David. His story is so packed with theology. King David, man, the guy as a kid is out writing the Psalms. The Psalms become the Bible. right? He's writing the Bible as a kid. He's brilliant. Defeats every enemy. You're just like, ah, love King David. Until he turns about 50. And when he's 50 years old, the crouching beast of sin finally attacks and the lust that was in his heart cosmically explodes and he becomes an adulterer and a murderer. He kills her husband. You guys know the story. And the same guy that penned, God, I love your law. It, it converts the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, Psalm 19.7. The same guy that says, man, I did it, I I meditate on it day and night. The same guy at 50 years of age, colossal failure. Then he writes another psalm, one of my favorite. It's Psalm 51. Read it, it's so brilliant. In that psalm he says this, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I'm like, what are you talking about? What about the dude you murdered? I think you sinned against him. What about the gal you violated? It seems like you sinned against her. But what was David saying there? He's saying this. Before I could ever commit physical adultery, I had to commit spiritual adultery in here. I forgot about your goodness and your love and your compassion and your fullness. I forgot about that. And I committed spiritual adultery. And that's what led. This is just the fruit. And then he says something in, in verse 10 of Psalm 51, and it's brilliant. He says this, created me a clean heart. What I need is this, this thing right here is messed up. It's disordered, and I've studied the law, and I've meditated on it, and I've written psalms on it, but at 50, I finally figured it out. What I actually need is for this thing to be changed. This is a heart problem. This is a disordered love problem. And renew a right spirit within me. That's the solution. Like nothing else is going to work. And you come to the New Testament, it's so true. The New Testament says, hey, 2 Corinthians 5.17, old things are passed away. The old is gone and there's something brand new in its place. We talk a lot about salvation in church and that's important. But guess what we don't talk enough about? Regeneration. That the, The old you gets regenerated and becomes something That we are always destined to be a true human. A human with a different kind of heart. With different desires. And that's what we need. So today I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. I'm actually going to finish the message with communion. So Jesus, today, wherever we are at, Lord, however that crouching beast has tackled us and consumed us and destroyed us and ruined us, vandalized your goodness. I pray that today you would move. And would you move through this simple act of remembering you, your death and your burial and your resurrection. I pray that in your name, amen. Amen.